Hi folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. It's the isolation that destroys us. The solution is in community. Tonight on the podcast, we have four professors of criminal justice at four different universities around the country. From the University of Minnesota, we have Erin Harbinson. From Montclair State, we have Jessica Henry. Joining us from Michigan State is Jay Kennedy. And from Peace University, we have my friend, Catherine Lavery. Our guests are on the forefront of reimagining our criminal justice system at a critical time in our nation's history. When a pandemic, social unrest, a presidential election, and the media call for rapid responses to very complicated issues, issues that our guests have dedicated their lives' work to researching and teaching. I was most impressed with the raw humanity in this episode and how much of all of our guests really care about people in the most difficult circumstances we could imagine. So coming up, the academics on White Collar Week. I hope you'll join us. Hello, and welcome to White Collar Week, a podcast sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries, the world's first ministry serving the white collar justice community. I'm Jeff Grant, co-founder and your host. I served almost 14 months in a federal prison for a white-collar crime I committed when I was a lawyer, so I know that it's the isolation that kills us, and the solution is in community. So let's get started. Hi, folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. Tonight we have a special show. We have the academics. We have on four professors from four different universities, all who um, specialize in criminal justice and justice studies. We have from the University of Minnesota, we have Erin Harbinson. From Montclair State University, we have Jessica Henry. From Michigan State, we have Jay Kennedy. And from Pace University, we have Kathy Lavery. Hi, all, and welcome to White Collar Week. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Uh, Hi. Yeah, we're very, very happy to have this. It's, it's a series of shows, as you know, where we're trying to bring all facets of criminal justice um, and to our white collar community, um, it's, it's a hard thing to, to figure out, especially when you're going through um, criminal justice issues mm-hmm. and you and have all the trauma of uh, perhaps being arrested um, or your family member or close friend who's been arrested. So we're just trying to um, we're trying to bring all the different facets to everybody. So we're really happy you're here tonight. So what we're going to do first is we're going to go around and give each of you the opportunity to introduce yourself for about five minutes or so, give some background, and then uh, we'll go through some questions and hopefully get into some conversation. So um, Jessica, would you do us the honors of going first and um, take it away? Sure. Hi. So I'm Jessica Henry, and I teach in the Department of Justice Studies at Montclair State University, and I've been there for about 15 years. But before I joined the academy, I was a public defender in New York City. Um, I worked as a trial attorney at the Bronx Defenders in the Bronx, and I also was an appellate attorney at the Office of the Appellate Defender. So I have a really broad lens um, that I bring to my classroom and to my research and my writing. And I just published a book, which I'm very excited about. I actually have it right here. All right. Um, It's Smoke But No Fire, Convicting the Innocent of Crimes That Never Happened. Literally, people are convicted of crimes that never even occurred in the first place. People don't actually realize that. Um, and my areas of research are primarily wrongful convictions, but I also write a lot about um, long sentences, severe sentences. So life without parole and the death penalty are two areas 
um, of research and study that I also engage in. And I'm delighted to be here and I'm excited to be part of this conversation. Thanks, Jessica. Kathy, my, my, dear, my dear friend who, <laughs> who, who, I, who, who I spent the day in New Rochelle with uh, when it was shut down due to COVID. Yes, our new claim to fame. Um, thanks, Jeff, for having me back. And, um, you know, I always love coming on and, and talking to you. Um, so my name's Catherine Lavery, and I am actually the incoming chairperson at um, the Criminal Justice Department for Pace University. Uh, I had originally been at Iona College for the past 15 years and had served as chair and graduate coordinator. Uh, my area of research has really kind of gone the gamut. Um, when, when people ask me, how did you get started? Um, I, I always admit it's Silence of the Lambs that, that did it, except I didn't realize there was no career in it for me to, to do it. So <laughs> went in and started to work more in the correction system and also with victimology. So my area has ranged from sexual assault on college campuses and in recently on community-based corrections and also the use of task forces um, with law enforcement. And now I have drifted more into um, looking at officer wellness. I'm actually part of a book that will be coming out next year on uh, law enforcement suicide and will be focusing my colleague and I on compassion fatigue and the impact of compassion fatigue with officers. And I also have a book coming out 2022 that I'm working with a colleague of mine um, who is at Iona College, Dr. Jeannie Zeno, on the impact of socio-political risk in public, private, and nonprofit agencies. So a little bit of everything. Thank you, Kathy. Really happy to have you here. I, you know, I just asked, got asked today to write a chapter on attorney suicide and attempted suicides because you know, I'm a suicide attempt survivor. Yes. So um, uh, it's it's something I, I would love to talk to you about more. Oh, definitely will. Yeah, it's, for sure. The, the, yeah, the study results were very interesting yeah. that we found. So yeah, that's great, Erin. So nice to have you, and um, and thank thank you for all the uh, the input you've given us in the ministry. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. No. Thanks for having me. Um, this is my first podcast, so thank you for inviting me to my first podcast yeah. experience. <laughs> Um, yeah, so my research background uh, is mostly corrections. Um, when I first started, I was really interested in applied corrections and thinking about how research can inform policy and practice with probation and parole practices, and really bridging that gap between academic research and research that happens uh, in the real world with, with agencies and on the ground, and also with policymakers and providing a link between the the findings and the approaches and lessons learned to really help agencies develop um, improved practices that support reducing recidivism in communities that also help support individuals who are part of the justice system and, and succeeding and, and getting what they need to um, either re-enter the community or get off supervision and, and resume kind of their lives. Um, so I've always really been interested in the corrections, uh, the intersection between policy and practice. Uh, so um, currently I'm a research scholar at the University of Minnesota at the Robina Institute of Criminal Law and Criminal Justice. And a lot of the research projects there 
um, or more all of the research projects there are really about taking research and applying it to policy and practice and, and doing basically the same thing, working with agencies and policymakers to use data to improve what they do to, to help people and communities. Um, but I also, within that, kind of have my own um, kind of passion and research, which uh, really kind of um, uh, is, bridge, is bridging from, from that area as well to understand how the evidence base and the corrections policies that we have apply to people convicted of white collar crimes to ensure that the different um, ways we structure corrections, whether it's how supervision is structured, how programs are structured, um, and the policies surrounding that also support individuals who are convicted of white collar crimes as well. Um, there's uh, a lot of evidence around what works, um, but there hasn't been as much focus in the past about how it might apply to other people, maybe under other circumstances. And so um, my other areas really trying to understand that link and, and fill in that gap. Yeah. Just so you all know, Erin's provided us a lot of research on um, white collar crime recidivism. And what we're trying to do is to apply it to uh, trauma-informed uh, counseling and how to not not just preventative but also early stage people who and um who are going through uh prosecutions and how we can direct them from the very beginning into um you know into, into a uh, um a methodology where they can improve their lives and they can take the long view so that after they come out the other side, um, what they can have is uh, better, happier, more productive lives, and certainly lives that are, are no longer um, um, in informed by any kind of criminality. So Erin's been very, very helpful. Uh, thank you, Erin. Yeah, I'm glad it's helpful. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Jay, um, it's so good to have you on tonight. Uh, um, Jay had invited me out to... Um, speak at um, at Michigan State at a white-collar crime conference, and I was very, very psyched, Jay, and we had people flying in from all over the country to attend the conference, but of course, COVID had other ideas. Yeah, that, it's uh, it's amazing how COVID has changed all of our lives, but uh, um, on the schedule tentatively for next year, and uh, thanks for having me mm -hmm. here today. Um, brief background, I'm an assistant professor in the School of Criminal Justice at Michigan State University been here for about six years now. I've got a joint appointment to the Center for Anti-Counterfeiting and Product Protection, and my research centers on crimes committed against business in general, uh, but I take a heavy focus on employee theft, particularly in small and medium enterprises, insider threats, and then product counterfeiting issues. Uh, and so um, looking at the work you know, that you've done, Jeff, it overlaps with some of the research I've done with white-collar offenders, um, formerly incarcerated, uh, individuals. And so looking at what are their um, reintegration efforts like? What challenges do they face? Uh, what barriers personally and professionally do they have to rebuilding their lives? And then trying to figure out, um, you know, those people who are really successful in doing it, what makes them successful and how can we recreate uh, the situations that lead to greater successes uh, for all offenders uh, who are coming up, in particular white collar offenders, because, you know, they have a unique set of, um, of issues and challenges. Uh, all the normal skill sets that would benefit a person who had been incarcerated and is coming out. Um, the, you know, so education, social networks, all those things. Um, the felon status for a white-collar offender negates the benefit of those in many ways. Uh, and so it can be a challenge figuring out how we can best assist those individuals. 
and so that's where some of my research is going. So that's why I'm glad to be talking to you. Thanks, Jay. So uh, what we talked about before we got on the air was what the opening question would be. And, and I think that the compelling question that everybody, everybody I know at least asks is, why in the world would you get into criminal justice? You know, you're, you're, you're all uh, reasonable people, and, and yet you choose to dedicate your life to something that's difficult. It's difficult. So wh why don't we just go in the same order, and um, we can each kind of talk about what our, our motivations were to get into this work and um, kind of bring your personal story into it so that we can um, so that we can go from where you were and then to why we're all on this podcast right now. All right, Jessica. So when I was a freshman in college, I wound up in a class I don't think I was supposed to be in because it was all upperclassmen and me. Um, but I wound up reading this article about vagrancy laws, and it was really about how laws sort of were used to police the poor and people of color. Um, and I thought this was just shocking that the government had such control and used it in such specific ways to target marginalized people and people who you know, were sort of under the radar or for whatever reason were not desirable in that particular moment. Um, and that kind of inspired me to think about a career in criminal justice. So right from the very beginning, um, and, that, and, one, and then in the summer, at a summer job, I got a job at a courthouse near me and I worked at a bar across the street from the courthouse where all the criminal defense lawyers came in. So by the time I think I was a sophomore in college, I knew not only did I want to do something in criminal justice, but I was going to be a criminal defense lawyer. So I actually went to law school to be a public defender. Um, and that's, in fact, what I did. So I can't think of a greater, you know, you say people ask you all the time, like, why would you ever do this? I can't imagine a more enjoyable, more rewarding thing to do than to engage in the study of criminal justice and to, and to be an advocate, as I was for many years. Um, we have a structure where the government has so many resources and so much power. And as a public defender, I was the only person in the room, the only person in the room who was standing between this tremendous weight of the state and my individual client. And it was a real responsibility that I took very seriously. Um, and it mattered, right? It really matters because we have a criminal justice or a criminal legal system that really disadvantages people who are already often so marginalized. Um, and so I think it's, it's a really compelling thing to be able to get involved with. Um, and I think it matters tremendously that people with a passion and a vision for change get involved. Um, and as an academic, I get to do the same. I get to bring this, my enthusiasm, my love, my passion, my understanding, my research to my students and hopefully inspire them to think about their interest in justice, um, maybe through a slightly different lens. So I think it's, I, I love it. I think we're all super lucky. And we can give a shout out to Venice Michelson too. Or, yeah. Or, yeah, absolutely. And um, she, um, she, she um, teaches with uh, Jessica at Montclair State, and she's a very dear friend of mine. So uh, She's so a friend she's, of mine as well. She's great. <laughs> She told me, you got to have Jessica on your podcast. So, all right, <laughs> all right, Kathy. So I, I probably, I was the type of person when I went to college, I think I changed my major seven times. I couldn't make a decision what to do. 
And so someone had suggested to do an internship and I, I did it at the local jail and it was during the beginning of the imprisonment binge. And so at the jail, they actually had the inmates outside sleeping in pup tents in, at the end of November. And I would go back and say, I don't understand what's happening. And I remember my instructor, who was a judge at the time, said, um, well, this is just how the system works. And I kind of carried that with me. And then after college, um, during the AIDS epidemic, I started counseling people. Um, and this was done through the back door at night under, you know, they would come in because it was the shameful disease. And I, again, would question, I, I don't understand why this is happening. And I don't understand how we're in a society like this. And I think that was the slow progression and then there was silence at the lambs. And then I thought, I'm going to go and solve serial crime. And what was interesting is my first time in the classroom, I probably felt very um, unqualified. You know, I had never wanted to be a police officer. I did not want to go to law school. I, I really, this was not an area I thought it would fall in. But what a fit it was. And, and, you know, once I started teaching and then doing research and opening myself up to, you know, working at Rikers Island and then kind of working with the probation and opening myself up and asking a lot of questions, I realized how fragile this system is. You know, I always say to my students when they come to declare, I'm like, you understand you're going into one of the most depressing fields where the people are at their most vulnerable. You can't take this lightly because these are people's lives. And, you know, and I kept saying, you know, social work, you know, you give a hungry kid a sandwich, they'll say thank you. You're not going to get a lot of thank yous in criminal justice at all. But if you really find your fit, it is probably one of the most rewarding, you know, careers you can have. And so I've been very blessed and I, I say, and a colleague of mine at John Jay says to me all the time, we're the luckiest people in the world to be academics. I mean, to be able to go into a classroom and share our experiences and our research and, and really shape. I, I joke all the time with students, we're like a cult in a very weird way. But I, I've really seen my students over the years flourish in their career choices because they were able to tap into that passion. Mm -hmm. And they also have an understanding of how flawed this system is. And they take that very seriously. And, and so I think it really kind of, you know, crosses a lot of different boundaries. I can't see myself doing anything else. I mean, I kind of knew that really even before I started doing a PhD program. I knew this is where I was going to be either working with offenders or victims and I've worked across the spectrum and now, you know, working with officers and it's, it's just absolutely amazing how rewarding um, it is. So. Thanks, Kathy. Erin. So as I was listening to your story, Kathy, it, I, I <laughs> recognize some parts of it. Uh, when I started my undergraduate degree, I thought my whole life I was going to be an architect <laughs> and I did a year of architecture school and realized it was not for me. <laughs> and I tried studio art to do photography. I tried history. I even ended up with a major in classical civilizations with Latin archaeology and all of that. But towards the end of um, my undergraduate studies, I took criminology classes and at first, I just thought it was interesting to ask, why do people do what they do? Why do some people 
follow the law and some don't. But then I started thinking about, well, who decides what we can and can't do and who decides what's illegal and what's not? Um, and, and how do we decide and who decides what's fair within that, knowing that, you know, everyone has kind of different life courses and different opportunities and comes from different backgrounds and cultures and experiences. And how do we, you know, why do we accept things as they are and can we change it and can we make it better? Um, and are we, you know, asking all the right questions? Are we talking to all the right people? So those were sort of things swirling around in my head, things I thought about, um, which was, you know, it was more of a sociology program. So there was a lot more emphasis on that. And then I did an internship at the Arizona State Legislature and I was a research intern and I would help testify as research staff at Bills on Committee and, and do background research on what the law was and how it would change and, and what that meant. Um, and then, of course, within that process, you see, you know, different groups, uh, lobbyists or advocacy groups, you know, trying to push one way or the other. And somehow all this information gets compiled to make a decision whether a law is introduced, whether it's passed, and and then what happens after that. Um, and so one of the things that I thought about was just this need to really bring research and evidence and in a an objective viewpoint because we're talking about a criminal justice system where a lot of people who are impacted it in the most you know most significant way aren't the people who have advocacy groups to support them and aren't there organized to talk about how it impacts them in their communities and their families and so um, I knew that I wanted to do something in that and I knew that corrections was also interesting because of just the scope of it and um, just the changes that were happening and some of the community-based opportunities maybe that were available. And I didn't really know how all that would come together. <laughs> and But I decided to start with my master's and then started the PhD program and um, just found uh, an opportunity. was really fortunate that I worked for someone who um, whose you know, mission really was to take research and bring it to the field. And whether that was teaching staff to use um, uh, practices of policies that were based in evidence that showed reductions of recidivism, or whether it was translating really complex and nuanced research into a way that um, a state legislature could do something with it to support those people. And so um, I just feel very fortunate. I, I found someone who also was interested in that and got to work with them and, and, and work um, uh, you know, in that area and continue to do so today. And I think one of my favorite parts about this type of work is sometimes, you know, you do get bogged down in some of the really, really sad and upsetting stories and, and just some of the, the negative uh, consequences, unintended consequences that people and communities face. But then, you know, I've worked on a lot of projects um, working with different states and, and I've been to prisons in multiple states, probation departments in multiple states, talked to parole boards across the country. And there are so many people who are really dedicated to making a difference and to using their positions to to learn more, to help people, to make the system fairer. Um, and it's really hard and it's really challenging. And sometimes we all have kind of different maybe visions of what that looks like. But I think one of the best parts is that it's actually maybe sometimes more optimistic than you would think because of all the people out there like yeah. us who, who really care and are trying to do the best they can to make a difference and, and to change lives uh, and change systems. So um, that's, that's kind of my journey <laughs> into this field. Thanks, Erin. Um, Jay. Yeah. So, um, I, I've had a really roundabout way back to criminal justice. Um, started out as an undergraduate in criminal justice, criminology, really, really interested in juvenile delinquency. 
um, thought at one point that I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, and so I, I um, took the, the LSATs, spent the summer, um, uh, one, of the, one of my summers in college, uh, visiting with a few lawyers that I had met through one of the country clubs where I worked uh, and decided that lawyering was not for me. It was not what I wanted to do. Um, and then yeah, I, I went to work in industry. Uh, and so I kind of forgot about the academic route. Uh, Whoops, Jay, you muted. Yep, sorry. Right. Went to work in industry for about eight and a half years uh, and then decided, you know what? Um, well, industry doesn't like me anymore. My position got eliminated. Uh, I went back to school uh, to finish my master's in criminal justice. And the faculty at the, the university said, you really need to go on and get a PhD. Uh, and in that time, my focus had shift, shifted to white collar and corporate crime, um, mainly because a lot of the things that I saw working for a major nonprofit, uh, international nonprofit, um, and uh, sort of a large Fortune 100 firm, a little bit less, uh, but really interested in understanding the decision making on the individual level. Uh, and so over time, my interests have grown to include business ethics, you know, understanding white collar offenders. Uh, and, and things like that. And so when I got to the University of Cincinnati to do my PhD, um, I went to the grad director and said, you know, hey, I'd like to get an MBA as well. He said, well, if it'll support what you're doing, then we'll support it. Uh, and I really saw the interest, and this is really where like my heart is, has really sat down, is in finding this intersection between business and crime and understanding the, the interplay that goes on, not only with the way that opportunities develop, but the way in which organizations respond to offending that, you know, they commit as an organization or the people um, commit within the organization uh, or crimes that are committed against them. Um, and looking at organizations as this, you know, this microcosm of individuals uh, that all engage in decision-making for various reasons. Sometimes it benefits the organization, sometimes it benefits the individual. Um, but in some ways, there's this path that leads to deviant and criminal behavior. Um, and understanding that that doesn't reflect always who that person is to the core, right? Uh, some of these things may be situational, sometimes they're personal factors, um, but trying to understand what that is, what that decision-making process looks like, and how can we affect that decision-making process is really where um, the passion for me lies. Uh, and so it, it, it really stemmed from, I didn't want to be a lawyer, uh, but I really loved looking at the individual aspect, the human's that are involved in criminal and deviant activity. Thank you, Jay. Um, one of the things that I find fascinating talking about, uh, talking with academics, is that you possess a very specific place in, in the criminal justice universe because um, the people who you're teaching or the, or the research that you're doing is inevitably going to lead to some kind of change, whether it be in advocacy or in program. Um, and sometimes, um, you're, uh, sometimes you all, we all know we're following the money, so it goes um, where, where the money goes is where the most change will go. Like, for example, there's a lot of money going into criminal justice advocacy right now, um, not so much into programs. Um, but the world has changed in five months. And everything that we thought we were going to do or that was going to be funded or that was going to be um, interesting um, 
probably has shifted. So the question I'm, I'm, I'm asking is, like, what, what are you at the center of in what you do? And how is it going to affect people, not just students, or, or maybe students, if, they, if they're going to choose paths as in, in programs or in advocacy or as correction officers or wherever they're going to go. But, but your specific location, who do you influence the most? What are you, what are you hoping to accomplish there? And, and how has that changed in the last five months? Has, has, it, all, has it all gone to hell? I mean, what, what's, what's going on? Uh, Jessica? Or you are on mute. Okay. Hi. Um, so it's, it's a great question. You know, I, I wrote this book about no crime, wrongful convictions. So what I focused on is people who are charged with, um, you know, investigated for, charged with, pros prosecuted for, um, and convicted of, and often incarcerated for, crimes that never happened. And it's a subset, if you will, of wrongful convictions, which is kind of a hot topic today, right? And I think it, it sort of unifies people across all political spectrums. Everyone seems to be able to get on board with the idea we should not be arresting, prosecuting, convicting, and incarcerating innocent people. Um, but what I love about the subject is it also gives us a lens to talk about the criminal justice system generally, because the reforms that would actually make a, different, a difference for wrongful convictions would change the system to better everyone. Um, and so I think that's very powerful. Um, and so when I talk about wrongful convictions and I tell stories, horrible stories, stories of people who were sentenced to death row, who were sentenced um, to death for killing their own child when in fact it was an accident or the child died of an illness, you know, people are riveted. They can't believe we have a system that allows that to happen. Um, and in the wake of, George Floyd and in the wake of the protests, so many people have focused their attention and rightfully so on how can we address police brutality? What changes do we need to see within the realm of policing? But I always like to answer while that's really important and we do need to take a look at that, there is a system in place and police are just one of the many actors that allow our system to fail and to bring people in with such high degrees of frequency um, and with such, you know, severity um, and how can we do things differently? And so I think one of the amazing things about the moment we're in now is we can shine that light, right? It's not just about talking about the police. It's also looking at the prosecutors who weren't going to seemingly weren't going to bring charges until the state attorney general got involved. Um, that's really telling people were saying, well, what's happening? Well, why wouldn't the prosecutor bring charges? And that, you know, created an opportunity to talk about what is the role of the prosecutor and how are these powerful people able to sometimes abuse the system? Where does it go wrong? Um, and so in my book, I get to talk about just, I talk about police and I talk about aggressive policing and I talk about aggressive policies that are set by cities and towns that impact poor people and impact people of color. Um, but I also get to talk about prosecutors and judges and defense lawyers um, and also our sentencing schema in general. And so I think what I'm hoping comes out of this time period is a real stepping back that we don't get so hung up on, on just reforming police and that we really think about what are we defining to Aaron's point? What do we define as a crime? 
Who are we pulling into the system? Do we need to do that? How can we reduce criminal populations overall? And what might impact our whole way of being in this sphere? Can we imagine a different vision? Um, and so I think it's an incredibly exciting opportunity right now um, to have, it's a springboard for what I hope will be really meaningful change. Um, and you can see it around the country. There's been progressive DAs elected, States like New York, New Jersey, and other states around the country have, re have enacted bail reform. Um, New Jersey, where I'm from, we've done some amazing things around eyewitness um, identification procedures and confessions. Uh, so there's this change brewing, and hopefully it'll catch fire because we're having this national discourse now. Now, I'm, I'm certainly reminded of the Hippocratic Oath all the time, first do no harm, and, and it feels like... Um, it feels like harm is something that the entire system is set up to do if we don't take a a, a more compassionate um, view of of everything. I mean, th these are people at at, at the uh, cross sections of the usually the most um, difficult moment of their lives, and their lives are literally in our hands. So, what do we do? And um, maybe we're making a, a choice to do uh, to do better. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, Kathy. Well, one thing I just want to go back to is just listening to the other guests, I think takes it back to why criminal justice is so special as, as a field. It's one of the most multidisciplinary fields. Mm -hmm. There isn't one person here who doesn't have some background knowledge on either mental health or law policing, the courts, corrections, probation, parole, politics, government, history, economics. We, we have to. And I think that's, that's one of the things that I felt really drew me into it. I have been saying to a lot of my colleagues now and getting ready to get back into a classroom, this is probably one of the most exciting times. I, I agree with Jessica. There's going to be a shift. The, the issue is going to be is, is how we have the discussions and how we understand how change is really going to be made. Um, you know, as I say to my, my students and I say to colleagues that I work with and in my research, change is excruciating. It is incremental. It is awful. It's like being on a diet. It is horrific. It is you know, you get on the scale, it's like, I'm up two ounces. <laughs> I haven't eaten in three days. You know, get on the scale, I've lost six. It's, it's a yo-yo. But the system was really made that way. That You know, the system, it, if you look at it for how it's been structured and how the government structured, it's, it's a fragile, fragile piece of furniture. And that's how I look at it. And Anytime you can get a bad storm and have no internet for a week, you can have somebody come and crash into it, but it's the builders who rebuild and who are determined to do this and understand this is an overnight change. Um, when, I, when I used to do my research with, with sexual assault and, and I would work with counseling victims, you know, it, their resiliency amazed me absolutely amazed me. And, and it took years for them in some cases to even come back to some semblance of normalcy. I've seen it with offenders who have been released to, to get back into a world and be accepted again. It, it takes a tremendous amount of resiliency. 
I believe the criminal justice system is resilient. And I believe the people who are working within it, for the most part, really want to see change. I think we just have to understand this is going to be slow and agonizing, but it can be accomplished. We, we saw it accomplished back in the 80s with different programmings that we used to do and, and, and with the initial bail reform that we did back in the early 80s. We saw the disasters from Rockefeller drug laws and what happened from it, and we took the next step to change it. It just takes a very long time. You know, I, I was reminded the other day, um, I was listening to somebody be interviewed uh, about one of the protests. And I remember I took the students down to Baltimore two days before the riot started. I, we didn't know the riots were going to happen. And we were working with gang members and survivors of human trafficking and, and having them try to prepare them to testify and helping them to prepare to be interviewed and, and serving them a meal here and there. And well, I remember we came back to our house where we were staying and we had a, a, a girl on the team who was a business major, had never taken a criminal justice class. And she said, you know, she's like, I can't believe what this week has been like. How the hell do you people why the hell do you want to work in this? And there was a voice from the back of the room, and it was a very small voice. It was one of my students who's now in a PhD program at Albany said, somebody has to do the hard work. And I think that's what we're all gearing up to do right now. We're all getting ready to do the hard work. So to me, that's exciting and promising. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad you mentioned the, um, the multiple disciplinary um, uh, approach that we all have to take. Uh, one of my mentors told me early on that um, that the only reason that we're that, so, that criminal justice is interesting is because of scale. If if this because it's um, mass incarceration has gotten so huge, and if not, what we would be looking at is the uh, the sociological determinants of health and criminological factors. Poverty, race, education—the the, the core issues—but criminal justice itself is just so massive that it's a, that it's a something that we have to look at unto itself. So I think one of the things that we're seeing is um, is uh, prison population shrinking for all kinds of reasons, and what and. So maybe that question will be down the line. What, what does that mean? And, and, how, um, and what does it mean for our approaches? Um, is it, are we actually moving forward into smaller prison populations or are we moving backwards somehow? So it's just a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a healthy conversation. Erin. Sure. I, I think what you just mentioned is kind of a segue into just the, the research that I've been working on the past couple of years and kind of how we've seen things change, um, you know, with COVID and the restrictions, uh, all those restrictions associated with that. Um, you know, a lot, past couple of years, there's been a lot of emphasis, um, whether governments or through funders to really understand how to um, reduce uh, reduce the, the scope of community supervision. You know, there's this recognition that why we've been focusing on um, 
de-incarcerating and, and moving people out of that. There's some people who, instead of just being left out of the system, um, just end up on supervision instead. And uh, in some ways that can be a feeder to back into institutions that some would argue that you're maybe even delaying just someone's returned uh, in, or returning to incarceration um, because with probation and pro supervision, if you're not following conditions and not compliant um, at some point you can be revoked. And of course it depends, you know, what you do and who you're working with. There's a lot involved in that. Um, so, you know, there's already been kind of a, a shift to understand that the community supervision system is actually larger in scope. More people are on it. And in fact, if, if we don't set it up in a way to um, help people uh, or, you know, give them the resources that they need, and then the people that maybe need more surveillance and, and more monitoring, so to speak, um, get that and figuring out how to do that effectively. So there's already been a movement towards that. But regardless, I think one of the biggest challenges with a lot of those reforms uh, and trying to change policies is that people are reluctant to sort of, um, there's a lot of research saying that if someone is low risk to reoffend, that um, putting them in programming and services can make them worse. Or having them report all the time, having them engage in, in services can in fact increase their likelihood of committing a new offense. And so, you know, we have a lot of evidence supporting that, but to help uh, to tell a parole board member who is responsible for making release decision, um, you know, if something were to happen, it kind of comes back on them, or at least in the news, it will come back on them, or a judge who sentences that, um, you know, we have a lot of data saying that people will do better in the community. Um, you know, there's still a lot of emphasis on things like the severity of the offense and considering violent offenses and those concerns. And so it's always been really challenging to sort of shift the, the policies and practices in a way that people um, are willing to be more hands-off for certain people and maybe reduce requirements or reduce the amount of services and programs and, and that people get and keeping them, um, maybe not keeping them on supervision for a long time. Um, once they complete their programming, maybe they can be done and resume their lives. Um, so that's, that's always been a challenge. Um, but with you know, with COVID, there's then instead now been this realization that um, we can't even really meet with people in person at all, um, or and we have to do it remotely now, or from six feet away from the the front of their house. We can't really search their homes anymore. We can't do drug testing anymore. So typically, everyone gets uh, conditioned to drug test once or twice a month on supervision, regardless of whether or not they've had any substance use issues in the past or have ever used substances. Um, so. You know, we've already seen, and this has already been kind of a concern and an issue that we've been trying to address, but then with COVID, there's been a lot of restrictions and surveillance and monitoring and those types of things lifted. And if they are used, you know, they're trying to be reserved for people who are maybe, who really need more of that um, support or closer monitoring. Um, so it, in a way, it's been, it's been... I guess helpful in a sense of, I don't want to say helpful, but I can't even a better word, but there have been some, you know, ways to sort of shrink sort of the, the impact that the system has on people's lives and to actually move in a direction that a lot of the research would support. But, um, but then there's also the challenges of making sure that, you know, if you are releasing people from jails or prisons, um, you know, yeah, you want to release them as soon as you can because of some of the, the, the uh, potential risk being in a facility for COVID, but you also have to recognize that some people need a lot of support when they first enter the community, especially if they don't have a house to return to and they don't have um, employment lined up, a uh, family member to support them. Um, and so there's this delicate balance too of trying to, you know, still support 
people that need assistance and to think um, and to think about how that actually works in practice. And so, you know, I think what will be interesting is there's a lot of us have sort of shifted how we do research, but also, you know, thinking about these changes that we've been wanting to see, but kind of supporting our agency partners and understanding how they can do them effectively um, based on what we do know, and then really monitoring that over time and, and collect data on it because We've been saying that these things can make a difference, um, but we hopefully we can collect some of that that data to then demonstrate that the changes we've seen that you can keep people um, that you can reduce drug testing that you can reduce office visits that you can try to do some things remotely and not impact public safety in a negative way. Um, and so I think that's how some of the the research projects I work on, which are probation and parole supervision, is there's a lot less intrusiveness from um, the supervision system. And so then to, you know, support agencies in a way to do that well, and also, um, you know, monitor those impacts over time to to help answer some of those questions we didn't have before. Thanks, Erin. Um, Jay? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I've loved listening to this because there's been a ton of good information, you know, that, that I hear. Um, this This time is just, um, I don't know. It, it's challenging in so many ways. Uh, I think you know, Aaron, to be, you know, pick up off her last point, and, and several others have made. Uh, you know, when we talk about the issues of COVID nineteen, when we talk about the system needing to support people coming back out, um, part of that of what makes those efforts successful is you know, sort of um a belief or an understanding that there are employment opportunities out there, that there are opportunities for people to reconnect within society. And COVID has shut a lot of that down, right? And so when we have individuals who are coming out, whether they have skill sets, whether they don't have skill sets, um, the need to really wrap resources around them is greater in this time frame because normal things aren't out there, right? It's not going to be as easy to, for them to get the jobs that they would have available to them. Uh, much more difficult to reconnect with family, particularly if you know either party has uh, has become infected. Um, but I really think that when we start talking about the focus of the justice system, the the social movements that are going on right now in this country have the potential to reshift not only policing at the kind of ground level in terms of day to day operations for traditional crimes, but also the way in which other crimes are policed mm-hmm. uh, and what we need to be careful of and cognizant of is that even before COVID, the federal government had been drastically reducing the amount of you know, white-collar crimes that it had been in, um, you know, prosecuting. So there was a large shift away from it. Uh, the COVID-19, when it happened, and the Justice Department's response in really focusing on COVID-19 frauds, we'd see what I think will be, or what will at least look like on the radar screen, a large, a large bubble, a large blip of an influx of white collar offenders into a system that is ill-prepared to deal with their specific needs. So not only is the system ill-prepared to deal with the needs of traditional offenders, but now we're going to have a much greater mix of individuals classified under white collar crime categories who are going to be incarcerated at some point getting out um, that are going to be dealt with by a system that's not ready to deal with them. Um, I think some of the other greater challenges that we're we're really going to see, and hopefully that will define this coming out is, as we look at the data on um, the individuals who are uh, brought into the system, 
will we start to see shifts in the demographic makeup of these individuals? So everybody knows the traditional notion of a white-collar offender is a middle-aged white male in a nice job who, you know, earns a decent amount of money and steals from the company. But the opportunities for quote-unquote white-collar crimes are growing as well. The situations from which these individuals come are going to change. And if we assume, like we have in the past, that white-collar offenders come from, you know, structured backgrounds, they've got large social and support networks, and when they get out, they don't need that type of assistance. As individuals start, we see more and more individuals come in that don't have that basis. Again, it's very easy to fall into the mindset, oh, these guys and gals can take care of themselves. They don't really need assistance. Why should I help somebody out who's stolen money? And so I think there's a very good potential that a lot of these individuals are going to get lost. They're going to get lost in the system. And then when it's coming out on the back end, they're going to get lost when it starts talking about rehabilitation, reintegration. Um, there's definitely a a challenge from a social perspective, um, but also from a, uh, a system perspective to understand what the needs are of unique offenders. And at this time to really make some changes that can substantively, substantively impact the way in which we go about justice processes uh, in this country and, and, and many other places as well. Um, it, it, fortunately, we don't have George Floyd incidents and, you know, the, you know, the white collar crime arena. Um, but I think that can be a wake-up call in general to the justice system that what we're doing does not work in many ways. Um, we have too much of a focus on retribution rather than rehabilitation, reintegration. Uh, and it's about time that we really started thinking hard about the fact that incarceration is not the end-all be-all for these individuals, that there is a point beyond. What does that look like and how do we make sure that these individuals when they come out have the opportunity and the ability to be productive members in society. Uh, when we start closing off choices and we start pinning them into um, behaviors of, of, of old that got them back incarcerated. Thank you for bringing that up, Jay. Um, I went to prison for SBA loan fraud post 9-11. And for all the years since then, um, I've teased my story out to, uh, to a point where I was finally able to talk about it. It took many years to be able to talk about it and certainly to be able to be helpful to other people. Um, but I take 100% responsibility for my behavior and for the crime I committed, but there was no way for the last 18 years to talk about the context of, of um, being post a uh, catastrophic event or in the midst of a catastrophic event where the government is making such huge sums of money available and that, and that um, the opportunity is there and some people will commit fraud, some knowingly, some not knowingly, some will wander into it. There's all kinds of different aspects of this that we can discuss that parallels all different parts of the criminal justice system. But now, um, since I wrote an article, the, name of the, the, the title of the article was, I went to prison for SBA loan fraud. Um, I'm one of the few people out there with actual experience in what it was like to go through the justice system for something in particular that is now such a large um, uh, topic in the, in the public domain. 
because there'll be tens of thousands potentially of prosecutions for SBA loan fraud. So um, it's not the fact that I'm being sought out. It just seems like like the um, the the interest follows whatever the topic is of, of the day, whether it be George Floyd, Black Lives Matters, SBA loan fraud. Um, and so the question I'm asking is, we all know this is a highly, highly nuanced area. There's no, you can't solve complicated problems with simple solutions. And yet, that's what the politicians want. It's what the media wants, I think. They want, they, they, they want simple answers. So how do you, how do you respond? Or do you respond to what's going on in the, in the, in the current uh, media? Um, and how do you hold your ground as to what you know in your bones and what your experience is, knows is true, even if that's not particularly what people want to talk about right now? Jessica. You know, I think now is an opportunity for us to really think about how people are brought into the system in the first place. And, you know, I think, Jay, you're talking about sort of this, this influx of folks coming in and, and Jeff also about, you know, the advantage that people may be taking of the small business loans. Um, but I often want to, I want to take a step back even further, right? We know that why people get involved in the criminal justice system is a confluence of factors, right? There's poverty, there's lack of employment, there's horrible school systems, there's over-policing, there's chronic policing, there's, you know, a whole host of things that all together contribute to people entering the criminal justice system. Um, and a lot of folks today who are involved in Black Lives Matter and are involved in George Floyd protests specifically, so I'm saying, can't we do this differently? Can't we envision a world in which programming that targets poverty and that targets these root causes actually is where we place our priorities? And what would that look like? Would people be committing so much fraud today, assuming that they are, I don't have the data in front of me, but would they be doing that if all the other conditions were in place? Um, and, you know, we're seeing such cruelty now in our criminal justice system, in prisons, with folks who are being exposed to COVID-19 and not being released, even for low-level offenses, even when we know they really wouldn't pose a risk to the community. Um, and I think People are horrified when they hear, you know, that someone, yet another woman just died in prison and she was a low level camp um, because she was exposed to coronavirus and she's gone. And it didn't need to be that way. Yeah. Um, and so I guess I, maybe I'm sounding too idealistic and not particularly, you know, specific, although I do have specific policy reforms that I could put on the table um, that I do think would make a tremendous difference in the functioning of our criminal legal system overall. I would like to invite as part of this conversation, these meta discourses where we really think about what people, what's going on in our society where we've said it's okay for people to live in such poverty and under such traumatic conditions on a day-to-day -day basis. So that, you know, in communities where violence is rife and, and, and people are not supported. What would it look like if we actually invested in communities today? Um, and so I, I think that's part of what's being prompted by today's, um, by today's movement. And that's also exciting. And it's different. It's not saying we have to, it's not saying that we have to continue doing exactly what we're doing. It's saying like, hey, 
can we reimagine? Can we reimagine something different? I think incredibly exciting. Um, and maybe not so incremental. <laughs> what Catherine was saying earlier, change is slow. That is true. But reimagining could really prompt different, like, if we reimagine drug laws and across the board legalize marijuana, that would really remove a lot of people from the system. If we reimagined probation and parole and who needed to be supervised and what technical violations could land somebody back in prison, we'd be reducing prison populations dramatically. That could be across the board. That doesn't have to be so incremental. Um, whereas other things I agree with you would take much more time to get through um, a change process. And so that would be my, my suggestion, my quick policy suggestion. I do think uh, that's not really quick, but that would be a reorientation. Why don't we reorient the way that we think about um, how we do criminal justice? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that we all put our heads together because the unintended consequences of some of these policy decisions, um, even over the past few years where we thought we were being progressive, um, really could wind up having a, a, a uh, consequences that we didn't expect. And, um, for example, um, uh, how we prosecute um, uh, children or people under 18 and, and what happens when we, uh, when, as, as we change the ages of, uh, and, um, and what does that do in terms of, of um, disincentivizing people to commit crimes or perhaps incentivizing them to commit crimes? It's, a, it's, it's, it's difficult and complicated. Uh, Kathy? Well, I think in, in retrospect, I'm, I just see so many issues as, as Jay and Jessica were talking, my mind gets flooded. I mean, COVID has exposed so many problematic issues within the system. The rate of domestic violence and sexual violence in the home and the lack of, of care that we can give them because we can't go into the homes. Um, the issue of fraud, cybercrime that's increased exponentially because people are at home and they're on their computers. And, and we have to look at how um, deviance um, gets manifested in certain times of crises, like a pandemic, and, and, and how we respond to it. Um, the pressures that uh, probation and parole officers have been carrying, even monitoring certain offenders, even in violent crime units where they can't find them for hours at a time anymore or days at a time because of it. So I, th I think it's a very multi-layered issue. And I, I think, um, you know, and, and, and Jessica, I do agree. I think if we reimagined, uh, it would be great. But you know, we have to deal with people and there are a lot of really difficult people who are not as, you know, okay, do it. As I, as I've said to Jeff many times, if we had more pygmy goats in the mix, it would, it would just relax everybody so much. And, and I think we'd be in a, in a better state, but I think, you know, Jeff, you brought something up that's really, when you were talking about the media and about policy, you know, we've become, I think a society that's become dependent on the sound bites. We want a quick fix. We want it in 10 words or less or 15 words or less because we want an answer because when we look around and we see how crazy society has gotten over the past five months and, and so many of us have been you know, locked in and, and locked down, so to speak, 
um, may not be a prison setting, but for some individuals, this has been a prison for them for the past five months. And, and so we're dealing with a lot of post-traumatic stress and trauma that, that is ongoing. And then you complicate it with everything that we're seeing out in the world. So I, I think, um, you know, again, I, I think we can get to the goals we need to get to. I think we have to do a restructuring of sentencing laws in this country. I think we have to provide more rehabilitative help for people, um, not just to, to enforce the fact that they can still make a positive contribution, but that's what we're supposed to do. We, we, we've lost a bit of humanity over the decades. And I think this is the appropriate time to get in touch with that again and, and, and to really start to formulate ideas and, and shape a new paradigm and a, an approach to how we can really help people. Um, a lot of people are suffering across the board, not just people in the criminal justice system, but victims of crime are suffering because they can't get the aid that they need and the assistance right now. Um, survivors of crime and family members who have lost people. I mean, you know, they can't attend funerals and they can't be at hospital beds. And so we're really looking at a, a huge amount of, 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 trauma that we are experiencing as a society. And I, my only hope is that the powers that be recognize this. And I don't know if it's the powers that be in government or in the criminal justice system, but that they can tap into that humanity and we can now take the steps forward to heal, you know, as we're still in the throes of COVID. Yeah. yeah I, I like to think that I'm toughened up because of my background and, and doing all the work I do in criminal justice. But I haven't had power for the last week. We just got our power back as well. <laughs> right? it's, been, it's been terrible. Right? So I went to, um, to research uh, generators because I want to get a portable generator. And so I, I, I went on Google and I, I typed in generator. And the first thing that came up was generator fraud. Yeah. And I said, is that a thing? Really? Is that a thing? And of course, that's our society. People are, are, are gouging people for generators. And enough so that it was the first, you know, the, uh, the first answer on Google. So, you know, I, I, I hope I ordered from a reputable place, but who knows? So that, that's our world. So, um, now you're dipping into my area then uh, on the product management <laughs> side. <laughs> Are you selling generators, Jay? Yeah, I mean, I, I know a guy. <laughs> um, and I'm sorry, I, I just want to jump in because, you know, Catherine's discussion of humanity, right, that last part I think is is really important. And, you know, Jeff, your story juxtaposes quite well because you think about in these crises, there are many individuals who take advantage of our humanity and who take advantage of pain and suffering um, to really, you know, hurt people, right? And, you know, you think, oh, you know, it's just, you know, a generator or it's just some product and you lose some money. But particularly now, it's not like people have a bunch of disposable income. Um, and how do we really balance the harm that individuals do against an approach to sentencing that is not so punitive 
that people never get a second chance, right? Um, so it's like it, it takes a lack of humanity to engage in some of these crimes, but it takes what I would say an abundance or an overabundance of humanity to consider the fact that these are people who have a right to try and rebuild their lives and we should give it to them, right? Um, but that's a difficult conversation to have. Yeah. Erin. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm trying to think. I have lots of different kind of thoughts just thinking, you know, thinking about the different things everyone is saying. And um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the challenges with changing the system, I mean, I love this idea of reimagining the criminal justice system and going from not even just sentencing, but just even communities and, and how even what happens in a community or, um, you know, can, can impact even that trajectory before you even, you know, decide to do something. Um, you know, and I think just some of the challenges, which you mentioned Jeff too, is that, I mean, we tend to do a lot of policymaking that's reactive. So some, you know, big event or some tragedy happens and we react to it, but we don't, um, we, and, and we want an answer fast and the public is demanding um, a law to be passed immediately. And it's really hard to project what those unintended consequences are, or to even think about whether or not the, the law that you pass is not just symbolic, but that it actually made a difference in the way that you intended. And that, and, and just from doing implementation work with states myself, is you can pass a law, but getting those things in action in the way that the legislation intended and to give people the resources they need to carry out all of that is is really hard, and so I think in general, when we talk about different reforms and different changes, we we react to certain events or we pick different pieces where we think we can make a difference um, or do it in a more peaceful fashion. But you know, a lot of you know doing reform in corrections or changing corrections policies, um, you know, if you interact with community members and you you know you talk about the use of risk assessment, you know, it's there's a lot of questions and concerns about it that aren't necessarily the result of risk assessment, but the result of all these decisions that happen along the way. And so when you, by the time you get to the probation officer's role, you know, how much can they do to sort of um, counteract all these other decisions that impact along the way and whether it's disparities that you see along the way or different responses to people and what route they go. Uh, so I think, you know, it's a system and it's, it's really hard to change the system, but it, you know, I think starting from the beginning um, and, and also just thinking through like, yeah, do people need to be incarcerated for things? Do people need to go on community supervision even? Are there other things we could do that would, you know, maybe meet our goals of, of what we think um, should happen when someone commits a crime. I mean, maybe community service is an option and that's it. Or maybe there's some other, some other things we haven't thought about, um, you know, prison and probation and don't have to be the only answers. Um, and so I think that, you know, as we, it's just really interesting to think now about how with community corrections, how we're thinking about reducing the sort of impact that probation officers and agencies have to just minimize that physical contact, um, it, which has the benefit of kind of reducing the sort of monitoring and surveillance and all of that. Um, but maybe we could also think about just reducing the impact of the system in general and just even putting people through that whole process. And um, rather than just kind of fixing things as they pop up or kind of fixing, you know, one part of the system, knowing that other parts are, are still functioning and might try to reach some sort of equilibrium along the way or, or keep things going the way it's used to going. 
Um, so those are, I mean, I think it's been really interesting to hear everyone's perspective because I think we're all kind of talking about similar things and just how can we yeah, think differently about how we respond uh, to people. And then, you know, and Jay, I think your example is really great because a lot of corrections policies and practices and, you know, the programs that we use are geared off of just sort of what has been seen as a typical group of people. And we don't really know how some of that applies to people who've been convicted of white collar crimes or cyber crimes. And, you know, a lot of people need support when they re-enter the community. They may have had family support before and they may have had a job before, but after conviction, it's likely to change for a lot of people. And, um, and I don't think... Um, that's something that everyone thinks about or is at the forefront of their mind and, but should be. <laughs> so um, yeah, I'll stop there, but it's just a lot of really interesting ideas. <laughs> Jessica, my, my reaction to reimagining was uh, about two years ago, I was on a uh, panel with some criminal justice experts in Adelaide, Australia, and they think we're crazy. Um, and Mostly, I think the reason is because they started as a penal colony. So that's their history. And so everything since then has been uh, a series of liberative moments. And so now they wouldn't even think of, of locking up people the way that we lock up people. It's You're just, one of the only countries who use life without parole the way that we do. It's, it's truly, we are an aberration internationally. What would happen if we, no matter what the crime... Just putting it out there. We, at 25 years, you actually can have a moment where you have the possibility for release, for showing that you have reformed and rehabilitated, that you're no longer that person. What would that look like? Well, I'll tell you, it would save us a heck of a lot of money, and it would reduce our geriatric wards in prisons. We could do that. The world would probably not stop turning. I think we could probably make that happen, at least for certain offenders. And Aaron, you, you know, I know you were talking about... Um, how good we are at predicting um, future dangerousness and all, sort of all the metrics that we have and how they're not so great. That's true. But what would happen if we try? I don't know. I think we can do this differently because what we're doing doesn't work and it harms so many people across the board. And that's not even including some folks estimate that 4% of all people who are convicted are innocent. That's crazy too. Our system's just not working. Would you fly if you knew that one in 25 times you got on a plane? You'd crash? I wouldn't. Uh, um, I want to thank you all. Um, this has been um, a wonderful conversation. Um, I feel like we could go on all night, um, but um, we want to limit um, the podcast to um, something reasonable that people actually listen to. So um, why don't we go around and um, each of you can give us, say, one takeaway. Uh, one more, um, what you feel is um, most important. You want people uh, who are listening to um, to take away from the conversation, or um, and certainly Jessica, you can you can plug your book. That that'd be a great thing. Um, but also contact information um, so that people know how to get in touch with you. So uh, takeaway and contact information. Why don't we just uh, keep going in the same uh, in the same circle? So Jessica, why don't we start with you? Well, if you liked what we were just talking about, I mean, I did cover it in my new book, um, which is Smoke But No Fire, Convicting the Innocent of Crimes That Never Happened. Um, it's just out with the University of California Press. Um, and I do invite you to take a look because the stories of so many people 
um, who've been wrongly convicted of crimes that never happened, I think shine a light on, on just how dysfunctional our criminal legal system is. Um, but I think a takeaway can be that we can do it differently and that there are real opportunities right now to make that happen. Um, and I'm excited about that. And I invite you to join me in being excited because I think this is a moment for a possible change. Um, and if you'd like to reach me, you can find me everywhere. So I'm on Twitter, J. Henry Justice. Um, I, am, I have an author Facebook page, Jessica Henry Justice, or you can go to my website, www.jessicahenryjustice.com. Well, that was well done. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Kathy. Thanks, Jeff, so much for having me. Oh, of course. Kathy. So my takeaway, I, I think if I'm going to just kind of sum up my own perspective with, with just, well, first off, I want to thank everybody. It's just, I always find these types of discussions, you learn a lot from it and, and it helps you reshape how you think um, moving forward. Um, I, I would hope that if, I hope people will want to continue this discussion because this, there's so many layers to it. And it's like an onion and we just got to keep peeling and peeling and peeling until we can try to figure out uh, the best approach or probably multi approaches that we can do. Um, I hope that people will have a different understanding of how the system works and that, uh, you know, people who work within the system are, are good. And, and I think most of them want positive change. And I hope we take what's happened over the past several months and get in touch with our own humanity again and, and to be kind, kinder to people. And I, I think that would be the best um, takeaway I think I could give is we need to be kinder to one another. Um, you can find me, I, I believe I'm on the website now at Pace University. So I heard my father's trolling me to make sure, as a good father does. Make sure his daughter's getting set. I'm also on on Twitter at Dr. Cat, and um, you can. And I'm on LinkedIn, and um, I actually have a website that will be coming up very soon. So, but I haven't figured out a domain name for myself. So, but you can pretty much find me uh, at LinkedIn and on Twitter and at Pace. So, and thank and you I again, Jeff. And on Instagram, you're Catmandu, right? I am Catmandu. That that was that was my high school nickname, and so was given to me because I had my friends help me set up an Insta because I still think it's 1987, and I still want to go back to 1987. So my other friends who have morphed into the 21st century did it. So I'm stuck with Catmandu. So yeah, that's awesome, Erin. <laughs> sure. Uh... Yeah, so I think my biggest takeaway after talking to everyone today in this discussion, um, I know kind of towards the end there, we were talking about all the change we want to make and, um, you know, kind of focusing on things that we wish were different. Um, and I, I like to always end on a good note, a positive note. <laughs> and I think one thing to, to keep in mind is that we have made changes and we have come a long way. I mean, we talked about how there used to be the reliance on prisons, the incarceration, um, life without parole. And we have made some changes in that. And it's certainly not done. And there's so much more to do. 
but I think we have come a long way. And I think that there's a lot of opportunities to use what we have learned around the research that we've done uh, to, to keep us moving and to document why this change needs to stay and so that we don't make the same mistakes again. And I think we can apply that to a lot of areas where we still want to see uh, room for improvement and room to grow. And, um, you know, even with all the recent events, you know, I think that with this momentum to keep changing and changing different parts of the system and, um, you know, there's ways to be innovative and to keep trying and to keep doing better. So I think if we can come as far as we've come, that we can keep doing better um, and listening to all of you today at this podcast and, and Jeff, people like you doing your work and, you know, all the other people out there, most of which who are really trying to help people and make a difference. Um, I think that that's possible. So um, just thought I'd end with that. And I cannot remember my Twitter handle at all. <laughs> so, um, I think it's just E Harbinson or E Harbinson. Nothing super creative. I don't lose too much pressure to come up with something catchy. Uh, my email is eharbins, E-H-A-R-B-I-N-S at umn.edu. And also if you search Robina Institute, R-O-B-I-N-A Institute, uh, you should be able to find me there. So um, just thanks again for, for having me, Jeff, and for all of you for the discussion. I really enjoyed it today. Thank you, Erin. Jay, you're, you are last. I uh, don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, you know, <laughs> given some of my predecessors, I think it's a bad thing. Um, I, I, I want to say thank you for everybody. This has been an enlightening panel. Um, one takeaway, the word I'll use that was used earlier is interdisciplinarity. Um, even though we're all crime scholars, the take that we have, the approach that we take to white collar crime issues, to crime issues generally, uh, bespeaks the fact that this is an issue that cuts across so many different areas that needs involvement from so many different individuals, not only from a research perspective, but also from a practical perspective, from a policy perspective. Uh, we can't leave this in the hands of the Department of Justice to try and solve these issues, right? It needs to be a much broader, holistic approach to things. Uh, so that's kind of my takeaway is to, to reaffirm the value of interdisciplinarity not only in research, uh, but also in practice and in finding solutions to the problems that we have going on. Uh, my Twitter is biz, B-I-Z, crime doctor, that's D-R. Uh, and best way to reach me is either through Twitter. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me uh, or you can search Michigan State University webpage, School of Criminal Justice, uh, and find me there. More than happy to connect. Um, I would love to keep this conversation going. Uh, and I think we should do this again in another week or so. <laughs> That's great. Jay, I think we will do it again, but I can't promise I can't promise a week. Well, um, when you get it on the schedule, call me in. Hi, for sure. Um, all of your bios and uh, contact information will be on the uh, show notes that'll be on our website. And this podcast will be available on all, all the major platforms, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Podbean, whatever. You know, the, Chloe will be putting them up on all of them. So um, awesome! <laughs> oh, oh, there's Chloe chiming in from the from the from the tech room. It was great. The audience had a great time. <laughs> Just thank you, everybody. Bless you all. Have a have a, a wonderful night. And bless you in your work. And um, thank you. And uh, we'll see you again next time. Nice to meet all of you. Take care. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. 
Thank you for joining us on White Collar Week, sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries. You can learn more about us on our website, prisonist.org. That's prisonist, like feminist. And please remember to rate, review, and share this podcast so that families suffering in silence can find us if they need us. See you next time.